Hello, welcome to our chapter chat for, uh, this is week number nine, and um, we are in the book of Acts, and if you're in a position to get a Bible open and to be uh, looking in Acts chapter nine, do so. If you're not in a position to do that, uh, but are just going to listen, we are going to read the text as well as talk about it, and I'm glad to have Glad to have my brother Jason with me once again to talk about this chapter. Jason, you ready to get into Acts the ninth chapter? I man, I'm ready. Coming back for more. All right, this is um, a pivotal chapter in um, in the story of the early church in the, the the early stages of of the spread of Christianity, um, because this is at least the first big chunk of the chapter is about the conversion of this fellow that we know as Saul, and really the beginning of the chapter just connects back to. Uh, what was introduced to us um, at the end, last couple verses of chapter 7 and the first couple verses of chapter 8, um, Luke kind of squeezed in the story of, 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 of Philip and the Samaritans and the eunuch in between there. Uh, but this is resuming what we're introduced to about Saul, this guy who is um, just vicious in his assault against Christianity. He does seem to be um, like be kind of a... a, a a head person uh, in, in some respects. Um, he's the mercenary. It almost seems like that the you know the Sanhedrin council and some of the other Jewish rulers are are, are, are looking to to lead the way. He's very much, I, I said it last week, but I'll say it again, uh, he's a terrorist. I mean he is, I, I'm picturing Osama bin Laden you know <laughs> when I yeah. when I read about Saul and that'll be very evident just right here in verse number one. Um, it really can't be understated uh, the significance of Saul's conversion, though. I just want to talk about this in just a, a grand scheme of things. I realize that you know every person that's converted to Christ, it's a big deal. Um, every all souls are of are of equal importance, but this guy's conversion is a really big deal because without his conversion. Um, the majority of our New Testament would be uh, it would either be blank or it would be authored by someone else. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, this guy Saul, uh, that we know better as as, as Paul, um, he's a huge figure. And to see the dramatic change that takes place in his life here uh, really attests to probably more than anything just the power of the gospel mm. uh, and the power of of what these these early Christians and the apostles were bold and courageous to stand up for and to continue to preach even in the face of persecution. The fact that they continued to do that uh, helped lead uh, to the conversion of one of the primary persecutors of that time. Mm. So let's just read about this guy. Well, before we do that, I think to further illustrate your point of how important this is, you know, Luke, in all of his writings, in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, he he doesn't he doesn't oversell things. Mm-hmm. You know, he is very concise and he only he only has so much room to write and so he writes the important things. This story here is repeated two other times yeah. in this book. Right. And so I think that just shows how much of an importance this it's is. Significant. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a big deal. Not only that, but you know, Paul talks about it just himself. Uh, in lots of his writings, I think of Galatians one, I think of First Corinthians fifteen, I think of all the different references in his letters to Timothy, where he talks about you know what he used to be and yeah. the the grace that was extended to him that helped him to become a child of God, um, and he really does serve in a lot of ways as kind of the the tent pole example. And I know that when I talk to people who have a rough background, and boy, you don't know the kinds of things that I've done, <laughs> I just immediately. 
come on, are you telling me you're this guy? Are you telling me yeah. you're even anywhere near the level of, of what this guy was doing? Because this guy was able to make the turnaround. Uh, God's grace extended to him. I know for a fact it can extend to you as well. So, If a murderer of Christians can be forgiven, yeah. you know, surely you know, yes. I can. That's uh, it's that's almost as bad as you can get. I think maybe the only thing that would be even worse would be actually murdering Jesus himself. And there were people like that who became Christians too. Yeah. Um, so what is it about this guy? Well, in addition to what we already learned from uh, the, the previous notes in, in 7 and 8, Luke tells us here in verse 1 of chapter 9, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Can we just stop right there? I, the language that Luke uses there, I think just it's, it just oozes violence to me. This, this idea of breathing threats and murder, the, the, the way that I kind of almost take this, the term used here, breathing here, is kind of like when we say, you know, oh, you know what? He eats, sleeps, and breathes football. Mm, or he eats, yeah. sleeps, and breathes hunting. Like that's just what their life is all about. Well, what is it with Saul here? He eats, sleeps, and breathes persecuting the church. Like that was his whole life. That was his identity. At this point in time in his life, that he was tunnel visioned, breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Yeah, I mean, strong language. Yeah, you know, chapter eight uh, when he was described there, it's like he's he's a wild animal, you know, mm -hmm. just ravaging the church. And so, just to see how focused he is on this and how how sold out he is to this idea, and I mean, he thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah. And you see the zeal, and you see, uh, you know, how how much effort he's putting into this. You, I mean, you can tell why the Lord thinks that he's going to be a good asset in the right. kingdom. Because I mean that's that's just the way he is. He is he is a hundred percent. You know. Yeah. Take those. If it, the Lord saw, if I can take some of that zeal and that fervor for the wrong things and channel that towards the good things, man, what a powerful asset he will be for, for the kingdom. Uh, verse one continues on uh, that he went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Um, we're not told here specifically why Saul um, is, is wanting letters to go to Damascus to do this, especially if you look on a map, Damascus is about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So that's you know, that's five or six days' journey. That's, that's quite a long ways away. Um, the only explanation I can think of is that this just shows the depths of Saul and of the other Jewish rulers at this time, the depths of their contempt for Christianity. That they know that it has started to spread, and so we're willing to go a week's journey to this place over here where Damascus was, and I got this, I found a note from Josephus, um, Damascus was said to actually have had the largest Jewish population in Palestine outside of Jerusalem. Josephus kind of estimated that there was more than 10,000 Jews that lived in Damascus. Wow. So you got a lot of religious people and if, if the influence of Christianity is, is, again, if it's starting to spread in a population of 10,000 already religious people, I mean, the chances are probably pretty good that at least some percentage of that maybe has been converted and has been uh, swayed. 
Um, and so, all right, we're going to go there and we're going to stamp it out there before it uh, spreads any further. I think it's interesting that we had we didn't have any idea that the the church had spread that far yet, and it's only through persecution that we understand yeah. that it, it actually has and it and it's there. Yeah. Uh, because he's not going to go and try to stomp it out if it hadn't got that far. Right. Yeah. And so it seems like it, it's spreading, but the same zeal that the church had, Paul or Saul had even more. You know, he he was he was wanting to get out there and, like you said, travel a week to do this. Yeah, yeah. You know, how much are we willing to do for the Lord? Right. You know? Think of think of think of, again. Think of that zeal. All right, it's it's wrongly directed, but would we have the same zeal to direct it in the right direction? Right. Um, think of how much we would be, you know, praising him if he was going. All right, I'm going to travel a week's journey to go over here and convert some people to Christ. Hey, we'd be going. Yeah, good for you, <laughs> man. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, are we willing to do that? Um, it, it, this is another little place where I, I do think Luke is kind of giving us kind of an inadvertent note about something. Because notice that it says that he asked for these letters, and I'll, we'll say something about the letters in a second, um, to those synagogues at Damascus. I, I think this is probably evidence to us that Christians at this time were still meeting in synagogues. That's where they were going to, to worship God. And what that says to me is that says to me that you probably still had a sizable portion of, of Christians, Jewish Christians, who had not yet made a clean break from Judaism to Christianity. Right. Uh, these are people that are still learning. They're still growing. I, I, they're starting to maybe over time make that, that shift and that hard separation. I think when we get to chapter 15 is kind of when we're going to start to see some of that, 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 that break fully happening. But maybe just what this says to me is this says to me that, that, that the Lord is, is patient with people and that you don't have to know everything um, right out of the gate when you become a Christian. You know, I, I, I know that there are some brethren who are of the belief that, you know, when we study with someone, especially if somebody maybe of a, like a denominational background, that they have to just completely, you know, abandon every former thought that they ever had about, not just about salvation, but about but about worship and the organization of the church and the work of the church and all of these things. And they have to be do a complete 180 in their thinking on that before they can actually be saved. Mm. And I'd like to point to a passage like this to point out that I'm not persuaded that that's, that that's the case. Um, just as the Lord was, was patient with those people and gave them the time that they need to learn some stuff and to grow some stuff in some areas and to figure out, hey, you know what, yeah, maybe we, we weren't entirely right about that and kind of slowly working at, at people's own pace because everybody's going to mature at a different rate. Um, that says to me that, that, that we need to allow that same thing with, with, with folks and to give them the time and the space that they need to grow. Yes, there are some things you need to be sure about and you need to know and we need to be solid on in order for you to become a Christian. Mm. You know, if you're not sure and compelled that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm not baptizing you, okay? We can't, we can't have that. But on, you know, if you've still got kind of thoughts about uh, instrumental music in worship, I don't think having an understanding, a correct 100% understanding of that is, is a prerequisite for, for salvation. That's one of those things we can work on. It is. It reminds me of how the night before Jesus was crucified, 
he was with his disciples. How many times do we have record of the conversations they had that that very night, yeah. where they were just missing the point altogether? You know, you have Thomas, you have Philip, you have Peter. All of them just had something wrong, and they had been with them three years, right. night and day. And you would think that they would have a better understanding and grasp it fully, but but Jesus was still with them. Gave him time, and he did. Yeah. So I think that's that's encouraging too. Yeah. Um, let's talk about these these letters that he requested from the from the high priest. Um, it's my understanding that Caesar actually granted the high priest and the Sanhedrin jurisdiction over Jews that lived and resided in in cities outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and I, I, again, I kind of see that as. You know the Romans. All right, yeah, you Jews. All right, you, you t- take care of your pesky little you know <laughs> Jew people and and all that kind of stuff. And fine, if that's what you want and you need to have some kind of say over them, fine. Do, do whatever you got to do. Um, and so then when Paul comes or Saul comes and he asks for these letters uh, to be able to bring these people bound back to Jerusalem. In, in essence, these letters really it sounds like almost kind of serve like like an arrest warrant. More or less, yeah. uh, it's a warrant that would authorize, you know, the, the the seizing of these people and bring them back to Jerusalem, where they would then have to, you know, stand before the council on charges essentially of of, of heresy. You know, you, you bunch of heretics. What are you doing here? Um, and that that really seems like that's what's being described. If you want to kind of put it, kind of dumb it down to kind of the parlance of of what we would be most familiar with. Um, but notice that expression that's used there, and I love that expression. Um, and maybe there were some who were using it and thinking it was in a derogatory way. Um, but finding those who belong to the way, and in my Bible that word "way" is capitalized. It probably yeah, is in, in yours as well. Um, that of course brings to mind, you know, John fourteen verse six, when Jesus said, "I am the way and the truth and the life." And that's what we're talking about here. And once again, notice that it's not just. It's not just men, you know, we think about persecution and, and men being roughed up, but Luke tells us it was men or women. It didn't matter. They were not a respecter of persons when it came to persecution. Uh, anybody that was uh, involved in the way, um, they're going to have to give an answer for that. Yeah, I mean, Saul was an equal opportunity persecutor. Yeah, um, yeah it didn't, didn't matter. And so I think that, again, the way that Luke writes, he brings in men, he brings in women. Um, and, and we see some equality there. Um, unlike what a lot of people will say about first century writers, first century Jews, first mm-hmm. century Christians. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's, there's equality there, uh, even, even in this negative aspect, you know, in the persecution. Um, and so I think it shows men and women were both equally important. Yeah. Well, I like the play on words, and I don't know if the, the New American Standard reads the same way, but all right, so we're looking for people belonging to the way, verse 3 now. Now as Saul went on his way, hmm. see what it did there? Mine doesn't do that. It doesn't do that, okay. <laughs> that, that, that's cool. That's an ESV thing. Uh, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, powerful. I mean, as it's just said in here in just a short little verse, but 
Uh, just imagine Saul, you know, again, tunnel vision and his thinking about what they're going to do. He's breathing. He's just thinking about, you know, all of the ways in which he's going to, you know, rustle up these Christians. And all of a sudden, there is this light from heaven that shines around him. I think there's probably at least a couple purposes in this, this blinding bright light. First of all, light is often associated with God and just with His with His glory and His magnificence. That's probably the first thing. But then the second thing, uh, <laughs> I think about the fact that this light was so bright that it blinded him. It calls to mind what's said about how no man can see God and live. Mm, uh, yeah. This is probably God's you know, intentional way of, of keeping Saul and the other people who are traveling with him. We'll notice that in a second. He's got other travelers. Uh, keeping them alive uh, because if I do show myself to you in a very real tangible sort of way uh, you're gonna die mm -hmm. and that's yeah. then it's gonna be all over for you um, but then this voice well before go we ahead. go there uh, Acts 22 6 when Paul is recounting this story he he mentions that it was about midday when okay. this happened we didn't see that in this, this right. time but there in, in 22 we do um, and I think that that's, that's kind of impressive because you think, when is the sun the, the brightest? Mm -hmm. you know, it's about midday. Right. And so for, for a blinding light to come, that shows that, okay, this was authentic. It wasn't just like, oh, reflection of the sun or, or something that we could uh, you know, d attribute that in some other way. No, this was obviously something amazing yeah. that was happening. It, it wasn't just like a fluke. It wasn't just Saul making it up. Right. You know, it, it was a big deal. Um, yeah. So, and this, and I'm going to imagine that the falling to the ground uh, that happened in verse four, mm. it wasn't just Saul falling to the ground. I imagine every one of the guys who was with him, they all fell to the ground, yeah. and they hear the voice, and the voice says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Now, I, I looked up a couple of verses because a couple of verses came to my mind before this of a couple of previous occasions where Jesus, when he would speak to people would do that repetition of the name thing. Mm. And it's funny because both of the references I was thinking of were both recorded in Luke. Uh, the first one was with Martha in Luke chapter 10, verse uh, 41, where he says, Martha, Martha, oh, yeah. you are anxious and troubled about many things. And then the other one was with, with Peter in Luke 22, verse uh, 31, where he said, Simon, Simon. And in both of those cases, it wasn't so much like a, like a stern, harsh rebuke. And it was more of just... Kind of here's here's a person of higher authority saying to someone of of, of much lesser authority, and, and kind of talking down to them, it, almost in the sense of like the way a parent would a child. Mm -hmm. You know, Hattie, Hattie, what are you doing? <laughs> you know that 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 kind of thing. Uh, that and that's the way I read this as well. Now we, we, we might we and that may be totally missing the mark, but I'm just kind of using other Luke passages uh, where Jesus had done that previously, uh, and that's kind of the way that I see this. Saul, Saul, because he's not asking. Because he needs to know the answer. Yeah. I mean, the Lord already knows the answer uh, as to why he's persecuting him. He's really just asking the question to get Saul to think about what he's doing. And that, that very much is that, that parent-child kind of thing where we ask questions to a child, not so much because we need to know the answer to it, but because we want them to figure out the answer to it. Saul, Saul, yeah. why are you persecuting me, buddy? What, 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 what are you thinking? What's going through your mind? That's, that's the way that I read that. Yeah, I, I see that, and I, I like how you put that. You know, I think it's interesting. Uh, he, he says, why are you persecuting me? Yeah. Uh, you know, at this point, where was Jesus? You know, we hadn't seen him since chapter 1 because he right. ascended. How in the world is Saul persecuting Jesus? He's not even around. The, this shows, the, the extent, by extension, 
uh, we're told in other passages, you know, where is Jesus' body? It's, it's the church. Yeah. And so by persecuting the church, you hit the church, Jesus feels it. Yep. And so I, I think that that shows the importance of, of recognizing just the power of Jesus. And, and we aren't you know, separated from him. You know, we are all part of his body. That's not, not the point here, obviously, but I think it's a point we can see. It's an extension for sure. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 talks about you know, Christ is the head of the body and the body is, is, is the church. And so, yeah, when, when things are done against the church by, by outside forces, that's hurting Jesus. Mm-hmm. When... Think about this. <laughs> Whenever brethren within the church are fussing and fighting, and that yeah. damages the body, that hurts the Lord as well uh, internally. Um, and so, yes, there is that. And I, it makes me think of the verse where Jesus talks about, you know, he who is not with me is against me. Um, and that's kind of being played out here. Even though Jesus is not physically present, uh, you're, you're obviously acting against me uh, because you're not with my people and you're not acting on behalf of, uh, of, of them. Um, verse, verse 5, um, Saul's response. He said, Who are you, Lord? Can we just stop right there for a second? Um, I don't think Saul's using the word Lord here in the sense of, like, you know, what we, what we would think is like a, a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is the Lord. I don't think he's so much acknowledging the Lordship of Christ. Maybe the word Lord here, probably, maybe the, the, the word we would think of would be like the word Sir. Yeah. You know, who are you, Sir? You know, recognizing again, it's, it's obviously someone in authority above him that's doing this to him. Um, and, and that's made clear when Jesus gives his answer. Uh, I, I don't think Saul even knows who he's talking to. I, I think he probably senses maybe this is maybe something of God, um, but he's not entirely certain. And mm-hmm. this next sentence, when it is spoken, well, let me, let's just read it. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I, I've, I've tried to stop and think about put myself in Saul's shoes in that moment. When he hears those words, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, think about how much that would have completely rocked his world, I mean, down to his very toes. Everything about his life, again, his life is all about eat, sleep, and breathe persecuting Christians. And in that moment, I mean, in the snap of a finger, everything is turned upside down. I don't. I don't think that can be understated enough. I mean, we talk about, you know, when we when we when we study with with people and they, you know, they have that light bulb moment. This is the light bulb moment of all light bulb moments. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I just I get cold chills. It does yeah, me. Thinking yeah. about that, man, it, it's like everything you know is wrong. Yeah. And it's just that that would just rock a person to the core. Yeah. And that's the way the gospel works. You know, when we come face to face with reality, uh, you know, sometimes we do have these moments. Yeah. And uh, instead of trying to glaze over it and try to make ourselves feel better or rationalize, I think sometimes we need that. Yeah. And we need to come to terms with what the truth is. Yeah. This is the. It's like often referred to the. You know the the pig pen moment with the prodigal son, where he kind of you know he hit rock bottom, and it was the the recognition of his sin. Uh, in this case, it was a it was certainly a recognition of sin, but more so it's a recognition of just the error. I mean, I'm just yeah. wrong. It was just dead wrong about uh, what we've been doing. Um, 
if we were to pull in from the other accounts, this would be where in chapter 26 there's mention of Jesus also saying, uh, you know, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You know, why are you kicking against the goads or kicking against the pricks? Uh, with the implication being that, you know, this persecution that you're doing, it's ultimately going to hurt you, yeah. not so much me. Yeah, it, It's going to hurt me short term, but in the end, you're the one who's really going to be hurt by all of this. Um, and there's more. There's 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 other things that are said, and maybe we'll just save those when we get to chapters 22 and 26, uh, because we do get those other um, the other versions of the well, the same version of the story, but other tellings of of, right. of the of the story. Verse six. Jesus continues on, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Um, and so. Um, even with adding chapter 22 and 26 and the, the other things that Jesus says, this does seem to be probably a, a, a relatively short uh, encounter as far as the words that were spoken to him. I can't imagine that there would have been a whole lot more said that Luke did not record for us. I'd, I'd like to think if there were other words said, Luke would have made sure those were recorded for us. So I take this as being a relatively brief encounter, but it just took those few moments to just completely change everything about how Saul is is, is looking at the world uh, and looking about his life. Um, he's told to go on into Damascus and to wait for further instructions. And of course, uh, Ananias is who we're going to be told is going to give him those instructions in just a moment. Um, let's read verse 7. Uh, one, one thing real quick about yeah. that. Um, this The idea of... There's a lot of people who say things like, uh, we read of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Yeah. Uh, by that statement of Jesus, it doesn't sound like he was right. converted yet. Right. Um, and you know, this—the idea that uh, Jesus is going to directly interact with someone to to tell them how to be saved or that you are saved—that that's not how Jesus seems to be operating here. Even in chapter eight, when the angel appeared to Philip and told him about this. We're going to read an occasion in chapter 10 where an angel appears, you know, and we've said this before, but it's, we have to really pay attention. The way that God operates is, is not by some kind of direct revelation to people individually, but there's, there's further instructions yeah. and it's, it's something deeper. And I think we're going to see that a little bit later. I just wanted to bring that it, up. It, absolutely. And when we couple this with the, the, the account in chapter 22, when he comes to Ananias and Ananias tells him, you know, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Can you be a Christian without your sins having been washed away? You know, it'd be hard for me to see how you can be uh, without that happening first. And so, uh, put all those those pieces together. And and and, and I would I, I'm I'm with you. I'm going to be one of the first to say uh, he's not yet a Christian. Um, he certainly he's certainly been given a lot to think about. And I think we're going to see right here in just a second. We're going to see I think some signs of repentance, some remorse, and some regret. Um, faith is. Well, faith at this point is not even an issue. He's talking to Jesus, so that's not even <laughs> yeah. uh, a problem now. Um, and so it's just a matter of, of culminating that in, in the waters of baptism. Uh, verse 7, the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Um, we're not told really anything else about these other men that are traveling with him. Don't know if these are, I don't know, I've always thought maybe these were just some temple guards that would have been sent with with Saul, and they maybe would be the ones doing the actual arresting to bring these, uh, you know, whoever they found, bring them back to Jerusalem. Um, 
but but they heard these things too, and and I do wonder about did this have an effect on any of these guys? Mm. You know, uh, obviously Jesus wasn't he wasn't speaking directly to them the way he was speaking to to Saul, but they certainly were, you know, bystanders to an amazing moment. And if they were influenced at all by Saul throughout their life, I I guess thinking optimistically, I'd like to hope that if nothing else, maybe some of those guys who are traveling with him, maybe they became Christians later on as well. Maybe so. I, I don't know. In chapter 22, verse 9, when it talks about those that were with him, they saw the light to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I okay. wonder if that's like a... They, they didn't like hear the exact words he was saying. Did it sound like thunder? Was it just, you know, or was it... Did the Charlie Brown maybe... Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. Or maybe they didn't hear it in the, in the sense that they didn't comprehend. Yeah. They're like, what, what does this mean? So yeah. maybe they actually heard the words, but... And like, even, if, even if they did not hear in, in, you know, the, the exact words, again, I'll go back to what I, what I ended with there a second ago. Seeing the change that Saul made... Yeah, I, I, right. I wonder if that would have had an effect on. Them. I mean, just just you know them making the the rest of the walk to Damascus. You know, you have to imagine they would have been asking Saul, "Hey, how you feeling, buddy? Hey, what's <laughs> going on?" You know, because yeah. uh, you know they weren't blinded. He was blinded though. Yeah. Um, and and then for these these next few days, let's just read it. The next few days, uh, verse eight. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Um, so he's got this period of days here where he's he's fasting. Um, I, I'm going to take it that he probably was fasting intentionally. Uh, I think right. this is one of those moments where. You know, he just didn't. He didn't want to eat. You know, again, so much of his his world has been rocked and changed, and his way of thinking, and he's left literally in the darkness because he can't see. Yeah. And and just the solitude, uh, the confusion, the conflict, the emotions that he must have felt uh, as he's forced to reconsider everything about his life. And I, and, and I do think this is kind of where we would. We, we would say that yeah, there's some some evidence there of, of maybe some some repentance and a and a change of mind and a change of 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 thinking taking place. Even with the fasting, that's kind of an outward demonstration of of repentance sometimes. Uh, and and I'd like to think that that's what's going on here as well. I wonder if the blindness here was to help Saul to remember, hey, this was real. You didn't imagine this. It, you know, it, it was a constant reminder. Yeah. Uh, which would further help the point. Uh, you yeah, know, I don't know. It, it does illustrate too that he was in the dark about Jesus. So I think there's some, you know, play on that too. Yeah, yeah, and play on the idea of the, just the darkness of sin, and um, you know what happens when we're able to come out of that darkness, and and the, the clarity with which we're able to see, and we're going to see that he's going to have his vision restored to him momentarily. Um, Physically and in a greater sense, spiritually, his vision is going to be going to be clear uh, going forward. Uh, verse ten. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So there's another indication of uh, here, here's Saul. He's he's seeking uh, and looking for, for what's right. I think, again, more signs of, of, of a change. Verse 12, And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13, 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Let's just pause right there for a second. So God comes to this, um, this disciple there who, who's in Damascus. So here's, here's evidence that, that yes, there clearly are Christians, or at least a Christian in Damascus. Yeah. Um, and the Lord's going to use him. And um, this is not obviously not the same Ananias that we learned about in chapter 5 who got struck down dead. It was just obviously a, a, a somewhat common name. Um, and really this is, other than his altercation here with Saul, it's the only other thing that we know about this guy uh, in the biblical record. Um, but I just like noting, and I appreciate the fact that Luke notes various people like this, where we just have these little short episodes and we see them serving the Lord's purposes in their generation and in their time. And uh, just what a pivotal role this guy, and probably in the grand scheme of things, it was kind of a small thing what this guy does here. Um, as far as the time it takes for him to do all of this, but in kind of a bigger picture, he plays a really important part uh, in the conversion of, of, of this man. Uh, and it just causes me to think about how, in the conversion process, how more often than not, it's never the result of just any one person's effort. Mm -hmm. It usually is this kind of a community effort. You know, yes, maybe here, maybe I've got somebody that I'm studying with, and maybe I'm kind of doing the majority of, of of that part of it. But then think about, all right, here's this other person who, when they this person visited at services, this person came and encouraged them, or this person sent them a card, uh, or this person invited them out to lunch in the middle of the week, and how all these different touches, and everybody's doing all their different things that they can do to help bring this person to Christ. And Ananias is kind of an illustration of that. Is like he's playing this this little role that. The Lord calls him to play in this moment, uh, and his role is to go uh, to to this man, and he's going to end up being used as kind of the agent for um, for the miraculous healing of him regaining his sight. Yeah, when it comes to evangelism, we all have our role, and maybe our role isn't to be the one out, you know, teaching door to door or whatever. But we all have something that we can do, and it, it does take all that. You know, I, I might be overthinking this, but I, I, I think of the overall picture of the gospel as one of redemption. And so even in the name of, last time we saw an Ananias, it was terrible. Yeah. But this time, it's good. Yeah. Last time we saw a Judas in chapter 1, wasn't so good. Here we see a Judas, don't know if this guy is a Christian or, or whatever, right. but uh, at least it's more of a positive outlook. Yeah. And so there, you know, there's there's at least that too. Yeah, there is the mention here of this this Judas, that's the, the house that he was staying at, and you know, whether he was a, a, a Jewish sympathizer or he could have been a Christian for all we know. Who knows? Um, it's neat, though, to think again about how, even if that guy was like a Jewish sympathizer, all right, when, when, when Saul makes this change, all right, does, does that help influence this, this Judas fellow, uh, possibly? Um, and he's, he lives on a, a street called Straight. Yeah. You know, and that's where Saul goes to get straightened out. Yeah. It's, I, I see a lot of irony in, in the, the gospel account and what we see there. And I wonder how much is, is there just, you know, God just showing us, you know, all of this was planned. Yep, yep, yep. Um, it, we do need to note, though, Ananias' initial reaction mm -hmm. to, um, to what the Lord has charged him to do. Um, and it's a very natural reaction. Um, 
It, it's funny, though, that it's if Ananias is saying, well, Lord, haven't you heard? <laughs> yeah. There's a guy, this guy down here, I don't, I don't know if you've caught up with the news lately, but this guy <laughs> has been, you know, he's borderline bombing synagogues, more or less. Um, and, you know, I'm, I just wanted to get you up to date on that. Um, maybe he's not so much informing the Lord, but it clearly is a, it's a, it's a hurdle for him to get mm-hmm. past. And we're going to see here, uh, before we get done with this chapter, uh, even after Saul becomes a Christian, that's still a hurdle for lots of folks. Yeah. Uh, the reputation of this man clearly precedes him. Uh, this is well known. You know, we we think about how fast you know news travels in our day and time with social media and so forth. And I, this is social media before social media existed. Everybody knew about the reputation of of Saul of Tarsus, and um, and so Ananias probably has some legit, maybe even has some concerns for his own safety. Yeah, you know, if I go to this guy, I mean, what's he going to do to me? Um, and so there's some, there's, there's maybe some. I, I can, I can, I can understand where he's coming from. Yeah, and I think that this helps too to uh, just help us to see how authentic and genuine this is, how big of a deal it was. Yeah. Um, you know, we we heard about Saul, but <laughs> did you know that like everybody else had too, <laughs> even like a seven days distance away or, or however long. Uh, these guys, I yeah. mean, they knew. And so, because of that, I think we see the transforming power of the gospel is even more impressive when we understand where Saul came from. Well, let's notice what the Lord says to him in response uh, about his concerns. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so... Ananias departed, entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So Jesus says here in verse 15, Ananias, all right, yeah, I understand your concerns, but uh, I've I've got big plans for this guy. Um, I've seen, you know, I know what his abilities are. I know his, his zeal and his passion, and I'm going to help channel that in, in the proper direction uh, so that he can be this this chosen instrument um, to be able to take the gospel to to, to Gentiles. We're going to see that before we're done with with Acts. Before kings, we're going to see that before we're finished with Acts. Before the children of Israel, we're going to see that a lot throughout uh, the remainder of Acts. Um, And there's kind of even this this note here in verse 16, um, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I don't think we necessarily need to read that in the sense of like, you know, He's 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 going to give his comeuppance, you know, mm, yeah. through through the role that I've got for him. It, it's more of it makes me think of Philippians chapter three, where Paul says, you know, I I want to fully experience the sufferings of Christ uh, so that I can be like Him. Uh, that was his, especially as he's near the end of his life. I think that was one of Paul's greatest desires was was that he could fully know the Lord uh, in that sense. And um, just a pre- Jesus just giving a preview of, of, of what this man's life is going to be like uh, as a chosen instrument, as a chosen vessel for him. Yeah, it, it's always a sacrifice yes. uh, to do godly things the right way. 
because people aren't going to accept that fully. And so in, in, the, in the life of Paul, we see that. If, if you want to look at 2 Corinthians 11, just to get the laundry list of things that he did go through, I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. Um, and just understanding that he, being the persecutor of Christians, would know more so than anybody you know, how devoted people are to persecuting. Um, and so just, just knowing that that's the person who is going to be converted, and in turn, you know, why else would a person like Saul want to change and want to experience all these terrible things unless he knew that was the right thing to do? Yeah. And unless he was fully convinced. I think, again, this shows uh, some, some credibility to the gospel yeah. and what it does. Um, it's not so much that it, it, this is the responsibility that he's going to to now carry uh, as right. an as an apostle, and the, the wording that's used there once again that that he's going to be a chosen instrument is that how the New American Standard uses? Yes, yeah. Uh, he's still just an instrument, and um, yes, Saul's going to serve a, a very special function. But at the end of the day, that's that's really just what all of us, at, at best that we can say about ourselves, is I'm just a, a a tool for the Lord, an instrument for the Lord, a vessel for the Lord uh, to be able to, to, to carry out His work. There's nothing inherently great in and of myself, uh, but when I am placed in the hands of the Master, well, then, well then, then my life takes on a significant purpose because uh, I'm able to be used by Him in that way. Um, and so Ananias, to his credit, he, he uh, you know, musters up whatever courage was needed to be able to go uh, to Saul, places his hands upon him. And so I, I'm going to take it that evidently um, Ananias at some point had had his hands had been laid upon him by an apostle. That, that's just, I guess that, that's just kind of the way I've always mm-hmm. assumed uh, because now he has the ability to to do uh, miraculous things in this fashion, um, and and he does. He performs this miracle. The scales falling from his eyes. I've I had a, a medical person sort of try to explain that to me once before, and it kind of went over my head. But uh, <laughs> it, it would have been kind of a visual demonstration, though, that the blindness has been removed from you, yeah. uh, and you're now able to see. Um, and Saul then gets up and is baptized and we do get from the from the other accounts the little bit more of the information there about uh, the, the question that was asked uh, when Ananias saw him you know why do you wait uh, what are you waiting for uh, rise be baptized and and wash away your sins and then after doing that he becomes a Christian takes food and is strengthened uh, what other things can we say about this section I want to, I do want to say something about the brother Saul thing okay well that's all that was on my mind well go ahead talk about brother Saul okay yeah there's a lot of people who will use verse 17 to show is like well he must have already been a Christian because otherwise Ananias wouldn't have called him brother but in Acts, several times already, we've seen uh, times where people, like in Acts 2, verse 29, Peter yep. calls them brethren. Acts 3, verse uh, 19, or, uh, 17, sorry, he calls them brethren. In Acts 7, Stephen calls those people in, in verse 2 brethren. And so it seems like he's indicating the, the connection of being a Jew. And so they were, they were Jewish brethren, yeah. not necessarily Christian brethren. Uh, you know, how do we know that Saul wasn't a Christian at this point? Well, he was uh, evidently going through a lot of the fasting and praying. 
if you could pray your way into becoming a Christian, if there was some prayer you could say, seems like he would have happened upon that in the past three days. Yeah. Um, but no, and, and remember, Jesus said that you're going to go into the city and it will be told what you have to do. Right. Um, and so after all that, he got up and was baptized. At that point, that's when he takes food and was strengthened. I think that that's, that's an indicator that up until that point, he was still concerned. He was still lost. But once, once you get that resolution and you know, your sins are washed away, then that's the time to get up and, and take food and be strengthened. Right. You know, we even still, even today, people have different connotations for that term brother even to this day. I'm sure. The guy who, who runs the Mexican restaurant across the street from, from the church building here, he almost always, when I come in, hey, brother, what's up? <laughs> and and I lots of times when I'm leaving and I'm getting my food, thanks, brother, see you next time. And it's just in the sense of like brother in the sense of just we're human beings yeah. uh, uh, and we have some level of familiarity with one another. However, when I say to you, brother, or even at the beginning of the podcast when I introduced you as my brother Jason, well, that, that, that has a whole different connotation to it, and it's understood in that sense. And the people here who were saying this, as Ananias said this to Saul, Saul would have understood that not in the sense of, oh, he's already calling me a Christian. No, he would have understood that in the sense of Jew to Jew. Yes, we are, we are brethren by, by blood in that sense. Um, but once he's baptized, then he can call him brother in a whole new sense. You know, now he's kind of double brother. Hmm. Yeah, he's that's a right. brother by blood, but now he's a brother by Christ's blood uh, and gives that even greater significance. Um, the fallout of that, and my, my, my Bible, the ESV actually kind of creates a new paragraph in the middle of, of verse 19. Um, so the, the, the last half of verse 19, for some days um, he was with, as is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. Um, he would have been Saul would have been in a very unique position to be able to to, to preach this message, um, maybe as opposed to some of the others who were there. Now it's possible. I mean, maybe there were some of those Christians there in Damascus that maybe had maybe they had come from Jerusalem and maybe they had been around Jesus even while he was alive and you know, was there in the fallout after he was raised from the dead. And who knows, there may have even been somebody there that had saw Jesus uh, alive. And those things that would have, you know, that was the proof that he was the Son of God. Um, but Saul was able to say this in a, in a really personal way. Hey, I just had a conversation with the guy the other day. <laughs> He's alive. Yeah. You know, I, I for the longest time was saying he wasn't alive and that was all a hoax and these Christians are just a bunch of liars and um, I was wrong about that. Um, he is the Son of God and um, I'm able to kind of give my own eyewitness test, well, not eyewitness in this case, earwitness testimony uh, <laughs> of, that, of that truth. Uh, I think in a way though, it being a witness of the resurrected Christ, that's that's what uh, that's what allowed him to be an apostle. Yeah. And I think he, he mentions that later on in yes. some of his epistles. But um, I, I think that it, it's there's a sense of authority in how he's able to say that right. because of that, and you know, a witness of the resurrection because of that. Who did that? First Corinthians fifteen. But yeah. um, that's that's a big deal. Um, I, I think sometimes we throw around the word witness, um, and, and the religious community does a whole lot mm -hmm. uh, in ways that I think are unhelpful because we, we aren't a witness in the same way that, that these guys were. Right. Um, and so 
Saul being, uh, being, you know, in the very unique position he was in, he was able to witness because Jesus had intended him to fit this role or, yes. or to, to do this, you know, what we saw before. I love the fact that um, it seems like, you know, kind of in the immediate fallout of, of, of obeying the gospel and becoming a Christian, uh, he comes and joins himself to those other Christians that were in Damascus. He's spending time with them. He's with them, you know, where they are in the synagogues and preaching and teaching and being encouraged by them. Um, you know, realizing he's got a new family now. And um, and again, a lot of these would have been people who, who probably they were already family in the Jewish sense before this, but now now it has a whole new whole new meaning. Verse twenty one: All who heard him were amazed, and they said. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? So there is the concern by, again, even his own now brothers and sisters in Christ about what's going on here. <laughs> We'd kind of heard through the grapevine that this guy was headed our way and he was going to come here to start arresting folks and now he's up preaching. Is this some kind of like... You know, covert operation. You know, some really involved, you know, spy detective work that he's doing before he then, you know, takes off his mask and ah, I'm, I'm really the bad guy here. Um, again, legitimate concerns on their part. Again, if if Osama bin Laden, if he was still alive, if if he became a Christian and and showed up at church one Sunday, I'm asking these same questions. Yeah, you know. Um, and so that's a, it's, it's, it's natural for them to do that, um, but it just speaks again to just uh, what, a, what a dramatic 180-degree turn um, Saul had made here. Yeah, I think we see a lot of, uh, you can tell somebody by their fruits and yeah. by what they do, and I think it, it probably did take a while for them to see that and to be fully convinced. And, you know, that's the way, we have to be patient with people, and we have to realize that, um, yeah, maybe there is a change, maybe there's not, but but we'll be able to tell by their life and yeah. by, the, by their changed conduct and, and what they do. Yeah. Um, and so I think we see this from Saul here. There probably was a period of time where, you know, all these people are kind of holding him at arm's length. You know, after Paul gets done with his sermon preaching about Jesus and he's standing in the foyer as people are filing out and shaking <laughs> hands, there's probably lots of folks that are like, I, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, thanks for the lesson, and you know, just kind of keeping their eye on him as they walk out of the building. Um, there probably was some of that for a time, but um, you're right. You know, the, the, I'm sure over time, as his fruit um, was made evident to them, that they began to see the sincerity. Now, there is always the thought that I've had about how difficult this would have been for for Saul. Because there would have been the realization as he encountered people, if not here at Damascus, certainly as he goes back to Jerusalem and some of the other places, that he would have been face to face with people that he had either you know, persecuted personally or was involved in the persecution of, of their family members and their loved ones and their neighbors. And now he's having to look these people in the eye. And mm -hmm. what do you say other than, I, I'm so sorry. I, I was wrong, and 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 I know that now, and I realize I I, I can't take it back. You know that I, I can't change what's happened. I mean, if you had a, if if your husband was dragged off and and was thrown in jail, and maybe he was eventually put to death, uh, and you were responsible for that, I mean, I, I can't bring that back. Uh, there's there's no way. There's no amount of sorries that's ever going to change that. Um, 
all I would imagine that Saul would have hoped is that people would have just extended to him the mercy that Jesus had had extended to him and to everyone else. Um, yeah, you you think sometimes people. We are our own worst enemy sometimes because we get in our own heads and we, we overcome ourselves with excessive sorrow. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense in which we need to remember our sins so we can be sorry for them and, and not ever go back to that old way of life. Yeah. But we can't let that control our actions right. every day. Uh, you know, we still have to get up and do the right thing, even if we're facing people that we have wronged before. You know, a lot of us have never been responsible for the murder of someone's family members. Right. Uh, but even if that's the case, and and you have to face them, um, you know, we have to approach that in a godly way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no matter where what side of that we're on. You know, if we were the one that that was wronged, you know, what if this was a fresh wound and you saw this guy and he was responsible for, you know, killing your cousin last week. Um, that would have been hard. It would have been a hard pill to swallow. Um, but then you look at it years later, and it's like, but this guy is the one who is responsible for more conversions than like anybody else. Yeah. Um, and it's and just inadvertently, like, he's responsible for the spread of Christians. Again, yeah. we think of that negatively. Well, he caused all these people to have to flee their homes. But there was also the good side of that. It caused the spread of the gospel to get to go in other places. And so, you know, even in, even in his um, error, um, yeah. there was good that came from, uh, from what had happened. Um, and you're right, the point that you said a second ago about, you know, there's a sense in which we should never forget the sins that we've committed. And, and, and Paul never fully did. True. You know, even you know, I think yeah. about him. I mentioned Philippians three a second ago, and that's that other passage where he talks about I, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. But that doesn't mean that he just fully erased from his memory right. uh, the ghost of the past of the bad things that he done. Because I mean, how many other times in in his writings does he talk about I was the chiefest of sinners? So there was that remembrance, but it was not the kind of of uh, he didn't allow it to control his life. Didn't allow that to. You know, cause him to, to doubt his salvation in any sense, or um, and certainly not to, to, to be some kind of a, a, a barrier between him and his brethren. Um, it needs to be handled in, in a godly way, as you said. Um, verse 22, it's then stated there that, uh, but Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Um, this makes me think of you know what was said about Jesus as a young man that he grew in in, in in stature and he grew in favor with God and man grew in wisdom and in all these various ways and that's kind of what we're seeing you know Saul's like a child here you know as a Christian he's a babe in Christ yeah. uh, but he's doing what hopefully all babes in Christ do and that is I'm I'm just soaking up as much as I possibly can and uh, being around other Christians as much as I possibly can I'm feeding on the word as much as I possibly can and um, and he's being evangelistic too. It's the other thing. It's always one of the other great things about new converts is they usually tend to be the most eager evangelistically, yeah. uh, and that's what he's about the business of. Is all right. I'm going to where people are that I can help. You know them to know what I came to realize. Does the New American Standard know? the ESV uses the word that he confounded the Jews? What's the New American Standard use? Confounding. Confounded. Yeah. Um, and they were uh, probably they were confounded. Number one. <laughs> 
at, at, at just Saul is the one doing this. But then mm-hmm. secondly, more so, um, confounding them from the standpoint of he's presenting information that really cannot be refuted. Yeah. You can say what I say, you know, you can make up whatever you want, but you're not going to be able to logically work your way out of this fact that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, we can't forget Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees raised up at the feet of Gamaliel. And Super so, Bible student. Yeah. yeah. And, and so he knew what, what the Jews thought, how they viewed the scriptures. And so being able to use his new knowledge uh, and to refute them and to be able to prove that, I think that that's that's important. That's powerful. Yeah. And I think, you know, they, some of us are, are, are in different positions and, and things that our, our background has maybe allowed us to um, you know, know more about specific um, doctrines that are taught in error, even. Um, and so we are better suited to uh, you know, try to disprove some of those arguments. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's some people who were former atheists who come to Christ and are able to refute a lot of atheism. They see the fallacy better than yeah, the rest. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, think about all those maybe prophecies in Old Testament verses that Saul previously, he viewed in this way. Well, now, as his world's been turned upside down, he now sees those things correctly, and he's now able to to kind of speak, all right, I understand that this is how you saw that, and this is how you read that. But here's the other side of that. Here's here's the reality of that, and to be able to help folks work through that. And, um, yeah, we're, we're not told specifically there in verse 22 that, um, necessarily of the success or the uh, or the lack of success with with his talks with these Jews, but we do in this next section see that clearly there was a resistance uh, to him and and the work that he was trying to do there initially in Damascus. So, verse twenty three, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so what we see is we see that even though uh, kind of one of the, the, the main leaders of the persecution party, even though he's, you know, switched teams, so to speak, that does not mean that the persecution party has just dissolved and went away. Uh, it's still active. It's still in full force. There just means there would have been other people kind of rising up to... Uh, to, to, to press the battle against Christianity. And so we have these Jews here that actually, all right, well, let's just do to this guy what we did to Jesus. Let's just kill him. Hmm. That's, just, that's always just an easy fix to, <laughs> to problems, apparently. Let's just kill people uh, and, and remove them entirely. Um, thankfully, though, and I, I'd, I'd like to think that a lot of this would have been the, would have been the providence of the Lord to see to it that uh, Saul was his life was preserved. That the information was got to him in, in the right amount of time, so that they could know and provisions could be made in order for him to be kept safe. Um, because to go back up to verse um, sixteen, fifteen and sixteen, the Lord's got a big task ahead of uh, of Saul. He's got major plans for him, and that's not going to be thwarted by um, you know a group of Jews who 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 want to commit murder. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I don't know how you view this uh, and, and how you, you make this work for you, but in, in verse 23 when it says many days had elapsed, the way I see this uh, is that is an extreme understatement because in Galatians 1, Paul is recounting some of this and he mentions 
that uh, he for three years mm-hmm. he was in Damascus, then he went to like Arabia, then he came back to Damascus before he went to Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, and well, spoiler alert, he's going to Jerusalem here in, in a little bit. But um, I think that this this shows that okay, three years had passed. There's a lot of stuff that can happen in three years. Right. You know, for one, Paul probably got a lot stronger in the faith, right. um, stronger in the gospel. Um, but you know, what what do the Jews do in the meantime when they've lost their you know head honcho persecutor? Well, they're probably going to look for other ways to persecute and, and you know go after him uh, eventually. And and so I, I think that. It's probably been about three years. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. And Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24 is a helpful uh, little passage to... And it's probably kind of a lesser-known passage that we cite when we think about his his conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does help to kind of fill in some information about that initial period of time after he obeyed the gospel and, and what that was like. And so, yes, I think this is probably an understatement on Luke's part. Or maybe not an understatement, but it's just that's just the wording he's he's using to describe uh, right. what's taking place here. Uh, but, yes, some time has, 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 has evidently passed, and um, there's the growing... Um, growing anger amongst this uh, Jewish contingent here. Um, so uh, the escape is made, and now Saul is coming back. He's coming to Jerusalem. So let's pick that up, verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So we've already talked about this a little bit, but um, maybe the people in Jerusalem would have been probably the, the most fearful of him. They would have been the most acquainted with what he was all about. You know, maybe the people in Damascus, all right, we've heard some stuff, but you know, he's not like just been here in our midst for us to see this up close and personal. But the people in Jerusalem, they have, I mean, they've seen the worst of the worst out of this guy. And all of a sudden, he comes back, you know, this completely changed man, and that's a tough pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. Um, they've not got to see some of that fruit uh, right. that, that, that Paul's been, been demonstrating. And so when he just shows up, you know, hey, guys, what's up, brothers, <laughs> sisters? <laughs> uh, can I be a member here You know, and be a part of the current congregation here and get, get in? There's holding him at arm's length. Yeah. Um, Maybe it was a good thing that he was gone through years. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to give them time for one. Yeah. Uh, because if he would have came back immediately, this this could have ended very differently. Yeah. Um, now, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to, can't judge the, the hearts and motives of the church there. Yeah, I think God would have you know, stepped in and yeah. made sure that he was okay, uh, as somebody does here. Um, but but still, that three years probably helped. Yeah. I think, again, there's there's the providence of the Lord working in all of this. And he knew, he, he knows how people are and just the way people... Uh, just tend to think, and all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna work within those natural parameters, and and, and what can be done. Uh, as you mentioned, there is someone who jumps to to his defense in verse 27, and this is our reintroduction to the guy that we met at the end of chapter four. This is our good friend Barnabas, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, we're not clued in as to how Barnabas knows all of this other than just maybe he just heard it by word of mouth through through others. Um, 
I don't know if Barnabas would have had any firsthand knowledge of maybe at some point during that period of time that Paul was in Damascus, he showed up there, and I, I kind of got to see this guy up close and personal, and so I, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna vouch for him. But but that is what Barnabas does, it, living up to his to his namesake here. He's yeah. the son of encouragement. And this is one of those great places where we see his encouragement being demonstrated. Think about, think about how discouraging it could have been for, for Saul, who still, even if this is three years later, he's still a relatively... He's a new Christian to them. Yeah. Uh, and how kind of demoralizing that could have been for him. But to have this guy come in, he's going to put his arm around him and going to say, this is our brother. And 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 he's he's trying. And let me tell you about what he's doing. Um, that would have reversed that discouragement, and instead had the opposite effect to, to encourage him. And at the same time, Barnabas is trying to also encourage the other disciples to uh, to just rethink their attitude about their brother. This shows us the importance, I think, of encouragers. You know, sometimes we read passages that talk about how we all have different roles in the kingdom and and how. Uh, in the body. Maybe your role is to be an encourager. And sometimes people are like, oh, that's kind of lame though. I mean, yeah. I'm not really doing much. It's the same way we but, talk about prayer. Well, you yeah. know, the least you can do is pray. Hey, maybe that's maybe that's a top thing. The same way with thing. encouraging. Like, yeah. Maybe we ought to move that up the list of important roles. Think about how much Barnabas was really sticking his neck out on the line. Yeah. Because what if Saul, what, what if it wasn't legit? <laughs> you know, he was putting himself in a position to say, no, guys, you need to pay attention to this guy. He's really changed. Um, it, sometimes people need that, and we need to, to put ourselves on the line, and then maybe even our reputation on the line to help somebody yeah. who uh, we know has changed. Yeah. Uh, the word, just think about the word encourage. It means to put courage in. Mm-hmm. Um, so all right, there, there's some courage actually being demonstrated here by Barnabas by kind of sticking his neck out a little bit. But now I'm going to take that and try to put some of that in in you to, to, to lift you up yeah. and uh, and. We need people like that uh, in the Lord's body. Uh, if you had a whole church full of encouragers, you still wouldn't have enough. Yeah. You know. Uh, and 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 maybe one of the things, and this is one of the things that we'll just kind of take note of as we observe Barnabas in these various uh, episodes like this. I, I want us to see, and, and we'll, we'll try to keep a tally as we work along. But let's just notice the different ways in which encouragement is done. Because sometimes we, we get this thought that encouragement, well, you have to have like a, a special gift for that. You have to just have a knack for that. I think some people think, well, if you have just a, a good way with words, okay, well then, yes, you're, you're especially suited to be an encourager because you just know how to say the right thing and, and you can write such thoughtful cards. And yes... Okay, that, 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 that is encouragement, but that's not the only way in which that happens. And, uh, and, and we'll see Barnabas uh, demonstrate encouragement in, in different ways. Um, verse 28, So Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. <laughs> Poor guy just can't go anywhere without people wanting to wanting to gun him down. Verse 30, And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so uh, there are these these efforts being made um, to preserve life here, for one. 
Um, but then also, all right, we've got a guy here who clearly has ability. He has uh, he has the eye. He has the witness, you know, testimony that he's able to give. Uh, we want to be able to put him to work in places, and if right here is not the safest place to do that, okay, then we're going to find some place else where he can be be put to work at, and send him send him there. And so they send him to uh, to Caesarea, and then to Tarsus, which uh, also happens to be uh, would have been his uh, hometown. We call him Saul of Tarsus. Um, what else down through verse thirty? Say something real quickly about thirty one in a minute. Okay, so uh, so far in in this, um, we do see the fruits of repentance. You know, if they weren't fully convinced before, seeing how he's dealing with these Hellenistic Jews and, and you know the the ways that he is speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, I think this is further evidence to show. Okay, no, this guy's legit. You know, he he's really truly converted, and yeah. there's no doubt about that. So. Um, verse 31, this is just one of those little notes that Luke just gives, you know, occasionally throughout the book of Acts as he talks about the, the growth of the church. Um, and we're told here that, that the church, and obviously the word church here has been used in just a, a, a universal sense throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that it had peace and was being built up. Um, I, for one, I, I think the, the, the main thing is that the brethren had peace with one another. I think that's probably what's being indicated. I, I'm, I'm not inclined to jump into to say that, that the church enjoyed peace in the sense of, okay, well now we get a respite from all the persecution. Mm. I, I tend to think that was still going on. Um, now maybe they would have had, they, they may have had, you know, kind of periods and lulls where it was not as severe as maybe it had been. Uh, but there's still clearly, and we'll notice it in the, the next few chapters, there's still, if, if nothing else, there's still the persecution coming from, from the Jews um, who are still very devout in that. Um, and then as we continue to work along, then we see the persecution extends to where we've got the Romans and they're, they're jumping in. And, and so the, the piece there, I think, is probably more just talking about how brethren had peace with one another. And I think that illustrates, you know, you think about when we, you know, 21st century, whenever this is, you know, whatever century we're in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. When we think of the word peace, I think we look at it in a different way than we're supposed to. Uh, you know, peace doesn't necessarily mean absence of conflict. You yeah. Know? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, the peacemakers, we're not the ones who just sit back and, you know, oh, everything's okay and all the situation's perfect. No, that that's not what it means. You know, sometimes being a peacemaker means that we have to address conflict. Yeah. And we have to do things that are hard and we have to stand firm for the truth and we have to have those hard conversations. Uh, being in peace does not mean that there there's no kind of conflict going on. Um, and I think this illustrates it. Even how do we find peace even in the midst of persecution? Well, it's possible. Uh, and I, I think Paul is, is one who illustrates that. And he, he tells us, you know, Philippians 4, right? uh, just how he, he's been able to be content. Right. Um, even when he has a lot, when he doesn't have much. Um, and I think that, that he, that's just an example of, of what the entire church uh, was and what it looked like. Yeah. This description in verse 31 is, this really ought to be kind of the, the goal for every congregation. I want it to be said that the congregation I'm a part of, that we had peace, we were being built up, we walked in the fear of the Lord, and we had the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the result of that was that we were multiplying. Um, God caused um, God caused an increase to take place. 
even if we live in a time where uh, you know worshiping together mm-hmm. uh, is is difficult in some ways, yep. um, and even when uh, it, it seems like things just aren't going the way they need to go for us. You know, we're, we're not living in a conducive time to spread the gospel and evangelize and to build each other up. We find ways. We're going to find ways. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the, God's Word is not going to be bound, whether it be by persecution or by a virus or by anything else. Um, and so, all right, we can't deliver that and do that through through this channel. Okay, we're going to find another channel over here uh, that still is within the authority of, of Scripture and what God uh, God will allow. But we're going to make sure that uh, that His Word continues going forth. So we get right here, um, kind of a this is Luke kind of bouncing back and forth. This is kind of like an, I always picture in Star Wars. If you watch the Star Wars movies, where the camera does that that sliding thing where it shifts from well, here's some activity going up on the Death Star, and then and we're now we're down here in you know Ewok Land or whatever, Indoor or wherever. <laughs> yeah. And there's just this back and forth between those scenes, and that's what Luke's going to give us now. So we're we're shifting away from the Paul scenes for a moment. And we're now going to come back to Peter uh, for really for throughout the remainder of, of chapter nine, then in chapter ten, uh, and in chapter uh, well, chapter eleven as well, um, and twelve uh, before we end yeah. up kind of coming back to uh, talking about talking about Saul once again. So we've gotten kind of more introduction to Saul, but we're going to have to put him on hold to uh, consider some other things. So we're told here, beginning of verse thirty-two. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all. He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named uh, Annas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Annas, Aeneas, Aeneas, maybe that's a better way to say it. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Um, I, I maybe have more questions about the inclusion of this than I have answers other than, I mean, the only thing I can say about this is um, this is probably just kind of given to us to describe different geographical locations where the Word is now being taught and Peter as an apostle is performing miracles in those places and uh, so if we're kind of just plotting all these things on a map, we're, all right, we're, we're getting new dots on the map as to where Christianity is is going. Um, why like I said, I want to ask the question, well, why was this specific miracle chosen to be recorded when I'm going to imagine there were lots of miracles taking place that, that were not specifically recorded? Um, certainly there's the the specific condition that this man was in, that he was you know, bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. Um, you know, maybe there was just something very dramatic about the fact that this guy and his health was restored as opposed to, you know, that person over there in the other town. Um, I don't know. What do you want to say about, about these verses? Well, I think it's just don't forget Peter. Don't forget what he's doing. And don't forget how authentic these miracles are. Yeah. So he just maybe just picking a miracle at random, that shows the fact, okay, this guy was, was paralyzed for eight years. So there's no denying that there was a true miracle happening. And I think it, it just it, it helps segue into uh, don't forget about this guy over here. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that that's it. We, we see, once again, immediate 
reaction when a miracle happens. Uh, so the Lord is involved. Uh, and, you know, people in Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Right. I think Luke, Luke does that typically. You know, he'll, he'll just throw in those, those things. Um, I will say about that, verse 35, they turned to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it sounds like they turned to the Lord. They, they became Christians. Yeah. Um, sometimes there are people who will say every conversion in the book of Acts has specific things that they mention. Um, I think here's an example of conversion that doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what's going on, but connecting with everything we've seen before about conversions. I think we can say the same about these people. Yeah. Uh, you know, what did they do to be saved? Probably what everybody else did too. Yeah. Um, so I just, we got to be careful when we use over overgeneralized sayings or, or things like that. Right. Um, so I, I, that's that's my two cents. Well, the only other thing I was going to say about um, these verses is, so verse 32 says that Peter went here and there, uh, and then we start getting mention of him going to these other towns. It maybe seems at this point that now, so remember up to this point, last time we saw Peter, well, they're staying in Jerusalem. Yeah. He and the other apostles are staying in Jerusalem. Well, now it seems like some time has passed. If we've got at least, if, it, if there's at least been three years that have passed, you know, if we're using that Paul timeline from Galatians 1, um, that maybe by this point now that the church in Jerusalem is now starting to be more self-governing. Because that is what we're starting to see here, kind of in an unspoken way, is that uh, apostolic leadership is going to now start giving way to local church leadership. Mm. And so now the fact that Peter is, has, has left Jerusalem probably is an indication that there's stability there. They may have, for all we know, there may be elders there at this point. Right. And so now they have the, the shepherding and the leadership that they need to where Peter and some of the other apostles, okay, we can now be free to kind of go into some other territories and places and uh, maybe new places where the gospel's not been taught. Uh, I, I think that's, and, and that's one of those things, that, again, it's not overtly said throughout Acts, but it's clearly there, this, what starts as apostolic leadership slowly over time, and of course there would have needed to be some time period to, to uh, help people learn and grow and become Christians and then develop the qualities and characteristics to become uh, elders, etc. Um, that, that's kind of what I think is playing out here. Yeah, maybe like the beginning of Acts 15 when we're introduced to James, the brother of Jesus, who is not an apostle, yeah. but uh, seems to have a prominent role there yeah. um, because of his leadership and, and, and of his knowledge and all of right. that. And so maybe that was that was involved in, in this a little bit too. Yeah. So verse 36, after getting the mention of this miracle with, with, uh, with the paralyzed man, we get this, which to me is a much more... Uh, well-known uh, miracle that's performed yeah. that Peter does. And this has always been a very vivid miracle from, from when I was a kid studying about this. Now there was, verse 36, in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And I'll not lie to you, the reason this has always been such a vivid story since I was a kid was because <laughs> of the name Dorcas. <laughs> and True. how unfortunate it was that she had, she had that name, uh, or at least that was the meaning of her name. She was full of good works and acts of charity. But in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. 
And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, um, we're not told here how old Tabitha is or was. Um, I think when I was younger, I just assumed she was an old woman, and I just assumed that she was a widow because of the mention of all the widows who you know showed all the things that she had done and and were were grieving over her. But that's really just an assumption. Yeah. We don't know that. We don't know that she was an old woman and uh, and all that. It's very possible that she may have just been. She could have been a younger woman, and maybe was just single by 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 choice. There's no mention of her having a you know husband or. Uh, or any other family members, children, or anything like that, uh, she may have just been like a lot of good Christian women that I have known in my lifetime who, um, they were married to the Lord. Mm. And, and the result of that was seen in how they just always ministered to, to others and uh, to the way that they cared for others. I have known throughout my life a lot of Dorcases, um, and w- whether I'm right about that or not, whether she was a, a younger woman or she, even if she was an older woman, it, it really doesn't even matter. Uh, it's evident that this woman's life was characterized by the good things that she had done, and we know that that was clearly an important and powerful um, identifying mark of her Christianity. Because I got to tell you, I don't know of any other Christian in the in the Book of Acts or in the New Testament where we're told of that an apostle was called for to please come and do something about this. It doesn't, they don't specifically ask for it, but it seems like the indication is raise her from the dead. Yeah, you know, James, the apostle James, when we get to chapter twelve, he's going to die. Uh, at, at the hands of Herod. I, I don't know of anybody where it says that they called for somebody to come and raise him from the dead. And he was an apostle. Yeah. But this woman was so important to that group of believers in, 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 in that town and in that city um, that they asked for Peter to come and raise her from the dead, uh, evidently, or do something. Um, yeah. and, and he does, and the Lord grants that. And... Uh, that just speaks volumes about um, not just the, the, the influence of this woman, but it speaks volumes about the, the importance and the value of, of the good works that we all can do in the kingdom. There's no mention here whatsoever that, that Dorcas ever you know, taught a ladies' Bible class or that you know, she did other kinds of prominent sorts of things of that nature. Uh, it seems like, you know, with them showing the, the tunics and the other garments that she had made and the fact that these are, these are widows, and that probably says that she, she had just a special heart and care for, uh, for, for, for ministering to those, that segment of people. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just involved in 
in the good works that disciples, men, women, young and old, are all called to make a part of, of their lives. In the same way that Barnabas was an encourager and was a very important part of the gospel, Dorcas here doesn't seem to be a teacher, but but was very concerned about others, was very compassionate. Verse 36, the deeds of kindness, charity, which she continually did. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a couple things. Right. It wasn't just one person that held up a shirt. Hey, look at what she made. No, it was, it was a lot of people. Right. And her name, Dorcas, literally translated means gazelle. I only know that because there's a marginal note in my Bible that says <laughs> it is. Um, but I think she lives up to that namesake because it's she wasn't s- slothful. Uh, you know, she it seems like she was always constantly abounding and doing good things for others. Yeah. So we need that in the church. We need people who are concerned about what others need. Uh, you know, what are we doing to take care of the widows? Are we we checking in on people? Does somebody need uh, you know a scarf knitted? Do you do you need do you need me to sew you something? Do you need me to like, bring you food? Uh, just we need workers, people who are servants. Yeah. I think we see that in here. And, and it's easy for us to kind of pigeonhole that as, well, that, well that's what women need to do. And, and mm-hmm. granted, there are, I mean, there, there, I think of specific passages, you know, later in the Bible that attach the idea of good works to women. First Timothy 2, verse 10, uh, for women to be adorned with what is proper for those who profess godliness with good works. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1 Timothy 5 talks about the, uh, the, the widow indeed. She needs to have a reputation for, for good works. And, and that's true, but... There's just as many other passages that just speak about Christians being typified by good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10, probably most notably, that we are are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for what? For for good works. And um, and we just need not ever downplay the, the importance of of good works. And we're just giving a couple of examples of some of the things that, that, that Dorcas did that was good works, but it's not limited to just those types of things. There's all kinds of things that uh, that we can do for, for our brethren, but good works is not even just limited to what we do for our brethren. Good works can, can extend to people that are outside of the family of God and our communities and especially the way that our things have been going in our world and our nation uh, here during these these spring months. There's lots of opportunities for, for good works to be done. I don't think anybody can say, well, I just don't know of a good work I could do right now. <laughs> the opportunities are abundant. Uh, we just need to seize upon those. And, 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 and maybe just once again, stop selling short in our minds uh, the, the importance of those things. And Dorcas is not doing those things because she thinks she needs to do them in order to keep her salvation. That's not why she's doing them. She's doing them because she is saved, because I've been redeemed in Christ, of course, this is what I'm going to do. This is this, it's it's the natural overflow of of having our sins remitted and being uh, being adopted into the family of God. That we're going to to, to demonstrate our, our our gladness and our joy, and that's going to show in our in, in our works and the things that we do. Yeah, it, it's not about being seen. It's not about doing things so that other people think a lot of us. You know, it's just seeing what needs to be done and doing it. Yeah. People will notice that. That's a natural byproduct, but that, that's not our focus. Um, and, you know, indicating here what you said about the, all the disciples that were so upset about this and, and thinking, man, you got to do something about this because she was making a difference. Yeah. She was influencing people. Yeah. And you know, sometimes we don't know who, how many people we're influencing or, or what kind of good we're doing. The point is we just need to do it. Here's a here's a here's a start. This would make, probably make a good midweek message at some point. But imagine 
if you were to die right now, would there be people clamoring for if if it was available for you to be raised from the dead because because of what an important asset you were to to, to God's kingdom? Or if you were to pass away right now, people would be like, Yeah, okay, it was his time and that's yeah. just that's just it. Um, I, I'd like to have the kind of Dorcas reputation, I, and I'm not sitting here saying that I that I do have that, but it's something worth worth striving for, um, where uh, what we contribute to the kingdom not only is is it evident to God, and at the end of the day, even if nobody else notices, but God knows, and, and we we rest and take comfort in that. But but it is great when when others uh, are are able to to. To see the fruit of of good works, and again, it's not for attention, but it's because of the influence that that can have, and and how that helps to spread the aroma of Christ uh, everywhere. I think that is a, a good consideration. You know, sometimes it's good to focus on uh, what what would we want people to say at our funeral. Mm-hmm. You know, what what sort of things would we want them to mention, and if we want them to mention certain things. Maybe we should start living that way yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe this is a good time to, to consider well, what about our own souls? You know, yeah. are we even on the path to get to heaven? Because we, we don't know when our time's coming. You have no idea. And so are we ready to meet the Lord? And I, I think that, that that directly impacts how I live my life right now. I got asked last year to uh, preach a funeral for a guy that. Just to be quite blunt, I did not know anything good to say about him. Um, he was, from my understanding, he was a Christian in the sense that at some point in his life he was baptized. Uh, it was before my time, and so I never knew that. He came to church occasionally, but all of my memories of him was that he was gruff. He was... Uh, just seemed to have a bitterness about him. Attempts to try to just carry on conversations with him were always fruitless. And um, I ended up declining preaching his funeral because I honestly did not know what I would say. Yeah. I'm sure I could have made some stuff up or some people could have told me. I'm sure somebody somewhere had something good to say about him. Um, but I declined. And there were other reasons why I declined as, as well. But... Uh, that was one of the thoughts that went through my mind was like, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'd be able to even say. And it did cause me to, to think about the very question that you asked, and, and that is, I mean, what would I want somebody to say at my funeral? Am I living in such a way that I'm even <laughs> leaving uh, material for people to even say anything helpful or good uh, about my life? And uh, I realize that's not the, the, the sole purpose of, of a funeral and of a eulogy. We, we, I, I tend to try to use those opportunities as an opportunity to appeal to the living more than anything. True. But there is a component where we want to ha- have left behind you know, a, a legacy of good. Think about all of the people in, 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 in the Bible that um, you know, were talked of centuries after they had passed, but still spoke. You know, Abraham is just spoken of in such glowing terms by you know, all, all the, these Jews here in, in, in New Testament times. Uh, and why is that? Well, because he left behind a legacy of, of, of good and things where his influence continued to reach far beyond the grave. Um, and that's what we want. And that's what, if, if, if it had been the Lord's will that Dorcas would have died here and remained dead, I, I think her inf- she, she being dead, she still would have spoke. Um, but 
this is part of why I kind of wonder if maybe she still was a relatively younger person because I think maybe some of these folks saw you know, she, she still seems like she would have had lots of years left to contribute. Right. And, um, and that's one of the things. So, so during the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic that's been going on in our world, uh, that's been one of my thoughts about you know, why all right, it's important for folks to take the precautions that have been taken, and that is because we want to preserve life. I want my life to be preserved. Do I want to go to heaven? Do I want to go be with the Lord? Yes, I do. I, I want that more than anything else that you can imagine, anything else in this world. But if that is not the Lord's will, then I want to live because I want to be able to do good works. I want right. to be able to, to, to spread the gospel. I want to be able to, to teach my child and my soon-to-be-born second child about the Lord and help them uh, to be prepared to go to heaven. And if we're ever trying to think of, well, well what's a, what should be our motivation for preserving life, that ought to be a big one. Yeah. Um, our identity is wrapped up in how we live for the Lord. You know, if we're not living in such a way that... that that we could be mentioned in Hebrews 11, you know, mm -hmm. to be among those who, whose faith w was renowned. Um, you know, and, and we don't have to perform miracles or, or do these, these great signs and wonders. We can be a Tabitha, a Dorcas, yeah. uh, you know, and, and those, those people are talked of very highly. And so our identity needs to be wrapped up in the Lord. Everything we need to, to do should be based on uh, not, not what we are living for, but that Christ lives in us. Yeah. Uh, and, and everything that, that we do is completely different because of that. Well, um, we see the influence of those last few verses that um, this miracle and, and uh, obviously as well the, the teaching of, of Peter in that region in, or in the city of Joppa. Uh, and that is where Peter is going to to be as we begin chapter 10 next time uh, because we're going to shift the, you know, <laughs> we're going to do the Star Wars pan over to the city of, 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 of Caesarea for a moment uh, before panning right back to Joppa because Peter's going to have to make a trip to Caesarea. And so we've, Peter's kind of burst back to the forefront here momentarily and for very important reason, uh, and that is because the gospel is about to be uh, kind of officially uh, opened up, the kingdom doors opened up to the Gentiles, and that's what's on tap for uh, chapter 10. All right, this has been a monster uh, <laughs> chapter. Uh, I, I really didn't even think about that before we started, but so much to be said from uh, chapter 9. Final thoughts before we wrap it up. Uh, we've seen chapter 8, the gospel spread to the Samaritans, the gospel spread to this foreign Ethiopian man. Here, the gospel is spread to the chief persecutor of Christians, just when you think it couldn't get any better and the gospel couldn't reach more, we're going to see that in chapter 10, the monumental yeah. uh, opening the doors to the Gentiles, which is going to totally revolutionize everything that's happened up to this point and everything going forward from this point. This is, uh, this is one of the most important things uh, that's happened in, in the spread of the gospel. And I, I think that we need to be excited about that. We need to be looking forward to this, uh, and you know, for us too, because where would we be, you know, the Gentiles yep. probably, who are listening to this right now, right. had it not been for chapter 10? So I, I'm excited to look at that. I, I hope that, that we all come ready uh, and eager to, to study this next week and, and that uh, we, can, we can find something to, uh, to apply to our lives. So 
Guys, just thanks for listening. Appreciate you. Hope that we can keep studying. Well, that's the perfect cliffhanger for next week. And so next week we'll pick up in Acts chapter 10. Until then, we'll see you guys later.